Now we come to chapter 6, and we find that he says here something that's good for the business world today, whether they're Christian or not, whether they even recognize God or not. Here's some good business principles. You see, God's given a lot of good advice for mankind, whether he's saved or not. It's good advice for him down here in this world. And here in chapter 6, why the important thing he mentions here at the beginning is beware of signing a friend's note and never become a partner with a stranger. That's good advice anytime. And the man that's unsaved can follow this and may be successful in business, and many of them are. Let me read this. Verse 1 of chapter 6 of Proverbs. My son, if thou be surety for thy friend, if thou hast stricken thy hand with a stranger, thou art snared with the sayings of thy mouth, thou art taken with the sayings of thy mouth. That means a person has been boasting. And apparently, one of the reasons that men will go on a note with another man, they want to be a big shot. They want to appear that they are really, you know, outstanding in the financial realm. And they will do a thing like that. Well, he says that this is something you need to beware of. If thou be surety for thy friend, if thou hast stricken thy hand with a stranger, you're snared with the words of your mouth. Thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. Do this now, my son and deliver thyself when thou art come into the hand of thy friend. Go, humble thyself, make sure of thy friend. Now you find out that you've got a friend, and you've maybe hurt him in some way. Well, don't be afraid to go to him and get things straightened out. And be sure that you hold on to your friends, and be sure that you beware of your enemies. That's exactly what he's saying here, and he says it many other places to us. Now, he says here, "...give not sleep to thine eyes, nor slumber to thine eyelids." That is, get this thing straightened out. "...deliver thyself as a roe from the hand of the hunter, and as a bird from the hand of the fowler." You are just like a bird caught in a trap if you go and sign a note. "...deliver thyself as a roe from the hand of the hunter, as a bird from the hand of the fowl. Now, he not only uses the warning, but he also now gives the positive side of it. And you're not only to be prudent in your business and in what you do and what you say in the business world, but you're to learn something from the ant. And that is a wonderful thing. I think one of the greatest lessons of eternity is taught by the little ant. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider a ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. Now, the little ant is quite a teacher, and ant ant is really a teacher, and she can really reveal to us some great truths. One of them is that she's as diligent in business as anything possibly can be. Now, this is something that the child of God should look at that little ant, busy taking care 
of the things that are all important, getting in of food for the winter, for the ant, preparing for the future, and busy about it. I think one of the great sins today, and I guess I've mentioned this before, I think one of the great sins of Christians is laziness. And many of them in full-time Christian service. What do you do today with your spare time? Are you reading the Word of God? Are you studying the Word of God? What a lesson the little old ant can teach us. What a teacher it is. And he's not through with that. He's going to go on with this. He says here, How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou rise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth, and thy want as an armed man. Laziness is a sin. For a child of God, laziness is a sin, wasting of time. Today, I think one of the curses of the ministry is laziness. A young man came in to me and told me, he says, I feel like I'm through as a preacher. I've been pastor up here at a place three years. And he said, I've run out of sermons. I feel like a dried-up well. And then, of course, they always become very pious. He says that I spend a lot of time in prayer, meditation. And I said, how much time do you really spend in the Word of God, really studying the Word of God? Well, I couldn't get a very definite answer, but I take it the young man spent less than an hour a week in the Bible. He's quite a promoter, always out doing something. But the important business always remained undone. And I told him, I said, unless you change your ways, you ought to get out of the ministry. It's a disgrace to get into the pulpit on Sunday morning unprepared. But you ought to have something to say. Now here in verse 12, A man of Belial, a wicked man, walketh with a froward mouth. He winketh with his eyes. He speaketh with his feet. He teacheth with his fingers. Have you ever noticed that some people, the wicked person, that everything they do and say, every gesture, is always suggestive? It always has a filthy connotation. And there are Christians that are borderline cases here. There's a preacher that I got away from years ago, and I had a layman the same way, double entendre. Everything that he said, and I know of a so-called Christian group that they meet and their jokes are double entendre, has that little suggestive thing that is in there. And this is something that God is speaking against, by the way. And God says concerning this individual, perverseness is in his heart. He deviseth mischief continually. He soweth or casteth forth discord. Therefore shall his calamity come suddenly. Suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. Here is a person that is supposed to be a child of God, and yet his every movement of his body is a suggestive thing. I hope I'm not a prude in reference to television, but there are one or two programs that I just don't listen to because of the fact that it's so loaded with that which is suggesting. 
One is a comedian, and every story he tells is, just has the double meaning. And, unfortunately, Christians get caught up in that kind of a thing. One of the great men of God, he was not a great preacher, but he was a great man of God. He meant a great deal to me. I have spent hours with that man in the past. I have his picture here at the study. He always reminds me of the pureness of speech. I never heard that man say anything that was suggested, anything that had one bit of smut in it. A man that was just as clairvoyant, everything he said was, and he and his life was as clear and clean as the noonday sun. That's the type of man we need today. Now, I recognize that I sound like a square. What we need is some bright young fellow with the latest thing in haberdashery and the latest haircut, and everything just must be. And yet you see him eyeing the girls, and uh, here he is married, the wife not quite sure about him, and we say, my, he's got a good personality. May I say to you, and I want to say it very clearly today, we are loaded with folk like that in Christian service, and we're getting nowhere. And you know why? God is not mocked. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you going of the flesh reap corruption. And when you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap that which is life everlasting. God is not being fooled today. And I don't think he minds being called a square, because actually he's not a square. He's a trinity. That makes a triangle. And you can't call him a square. Our God today demands a holy life. And somebody says, why? Because he is holy. He's that kind of a God, and it's that kind of a person that he's going to bless and be interested in. Oh, how you and I need to recognize that we're dealing with a holy God. And I said to a preacher friend of mine, he's a wonderful preacher, he's in the holiness movement today. fact of the matter is, he's Pentecostal, but he emphasizes holiness. And I was kidding him. I said, you know, the trouble with you holiness people today is... The one criticism I have is that you've lost your holiness, and you are the ones ought to be bearing down on that for the benefit of us today that have got very far from God. My, what an emphasis is needed in this particular connection today. Now we're moving down into a very wonderful chapter here. And we put in at verse 16, we'd be looking at the seven things that God hates. Now, he says here that he hates these things. And I want to zero in on this particular passage. As you've noted, as we've gone along, we zero in every now and then on a particular proverb, or several of them. Now, will you notice what he says here? I'm reading at verse 16, chapter 6 of Proverbs. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Now, here's the list. A proud look, a lying tongue, 
and hands that shed innocent blood, an heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, fifth, feet that be swift and running to mischief, six, a false witness that speaketh lies, seven, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Isn't that an interesting thing? These are the seven things that God says that he hates. And there's nothing here about using makeup, is there? And there's nothing here about some of the little things that we think are so important today. And these are some of the things that are passed over in the contemporary church. They're just ignored. Now, the interesting thing, though, in the strange language here is, these are things that God hates. Six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. And I take it that if it's an abomination to him, he hates the seventh one also. Now, we ask the question today, does God hate? And the present idea and present conception is that he doesn't. Well, somebody says, after all, isn't one of the definitions of God that God is love? And certainly that's true. And since that is true, then it would be impossible for him to hate, for he's love. And furthermore, when he loves, he couldn't hate at the same time. Well, this type of reasoning, I think, is a bit of sophistry, and certainly it's not satisfactory. They use a philosophical method today known as the syllogistic method of reasoning. And it's a deductive philosophy. And it goes something like this. This is the syllogism. First, there's a major premise. And the major premise is God is love. And the minor premise is love is the opposite of hate. Believe me, those are certainly factual. But notice the conclusion. Then, If both of those are true, God does not hate. Well, the trouble with that is it's a faulty, fatuous, fallacious, and a foolish conclusion. Because you can move this right over into the human plane, and it actually is impossible to love someone without hating the opposite of that individual, that is, that which would hurt the individual. Let me illustrate that with a homely illustration. You love your child, and by the same token, you hate the fever that's racking the brow of the little one. You hate that mad dog with a frothing mouth that comes into the yard and would bite that little child and kill it. You don't say to that mad dog, Here, puppy, puppy, and pat him on the head and tell him to play with your child because you love everything. You're very foolish if you do that. If you love your child, you'll hate that mad dog. It just has to be that way. Love always requires the opposite of hate. As long as we live in a world of contrast, you'll have these opposites. And if you love the right, you're going to hate the wrong. If you love sin, you're going to hate righteousness. And the Word of God says to love the good and to hate the evil. When we get to the book of Ecclesiastes, which will be the next in the Old Testament, but we'll pick up a book in the New Testament before we get there, it says there there's a time to love and a time to hate. And someone is 
put it like this, and this certainly fits into the Proverbs we've had so far. There is a time to part and a time to meet. There's a time to sleep and a time to eat. There's a time to work and a time to play. There's a time to sing and a time to pray. There's a time that's glad and a time that's blue. There's a time to plan and a time to do. There's a time to grin and show you grit. But there never was a time to quit. I think that's rather good, by the way. And I put it in my notes in this first part of this, where he says, don't be lazy, have a plan, be organized, let the lowly ain't teach you. We come now that God loves, but God also hates. And these are the seven Beatitudes and the seven things God hates here. We ought to put them on our hate parade. And there are things that God says definitely that he hates. And God doesn't mind saying he hates. In Deuteronomy 16:22, and that was the first time in Deuteronomy that he ever said he loved anybody. And here he says, "...neither shalt thou set thee up any image which the Lord thy God hateth." God says, "...anything you put in my place, I hate, that will take my place." And even in the millennium, that great millennial psalm, Psalm 45, verse 7, it says, "...thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. One follows the other as the night follows the day." How wonderful it is to notice these things in the Word of God. And God said to the church yonder in the early church in Revelation 2, 6, "...but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans." And God says, "...I'll hate them also." God didn't mind saying that he hated certain things. And we have them here. There is, I think, in Scripture, the flavored... The Chinese and European chefs have developed it to a fine art, the sweet and the sour. God is love. By the same token, God is hate. And Scripture adequately states the case. God here labels seven things that he hates. And the seven indicates not perfection, but completeness. This is complete hatred of these things. And these are all of the works of the flesh. And these are things that reveal the total depravity and the utter degradation of the human species. And God has gone on record that he hates these things. God denies the thesis of modernism that he's some sentimental and senile old woman who weeps but never works. He shuts his eyes to the sins of mankind. He's tolerant with evil and forgives because he hasn't the intestinal fortitude to punish sin. God says, I love, but God also says, I hate. And this idea today to be charitable to guilty because he doesn't have the courage to go through with strong program of punishment. That is the thing that's corrupting and wrecking our society today. Not willing to punish the guilty. God says he does. And God is not afraid of public opinion, and he doesn't run from any appearance of offending man because he's a coward. God says by no means he'll clear the guilty. His laws are inviolate and inexorable. Now let's look at this ugly and hateful brood. It belongs now on the hate side of the ledger. 
Will you notice it? Number one on God's hate parade is a proud look. And the literal is eyes of loftiness. What is this? Well, this is this attitude that overvalues self and undervalues others. This is pride. Just to sit in church and to take a look back at somebody else that you're better than they are. Just that little look and turn of the face, the flash of the eye, that proud look, God says, I hate it. And God says, here, it's number one. He puts it ahead of drunkenness. He puts it ahead of murder. God says, I hate this thing. Ooh, my, in church today, you could get by with a proud look. And nobody would say anything to you. But did you know that the first overt act of sin in heaven, original sin, was that of pride. It was when Satan, that angel of the morn, that said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He is the one that said to man in the Garden of Eden, ye shall be as God. It's quite interesting today that back of all psychological disturbances and psychosomatic disease is the trunk of a tree from which all abnormalities spring. You know what that is? A lack of being a complete personality. I want to be somebody. I want to have certain status symbols. And one of these is to declare my independence of God. Be my own God. My little self is God. That's the reason that work salvation today appeals. A little man likes to say, well, I'm going to work out my salvation. I'll do it myself, and I don't need you, God, and I certainly don't need to have your son die for me. I'll work this out myself, and when I come into your presence, I want you to move over because I'm going to sit down by the side of you. I am as good as you are. That is the thing that a little man today that's psychologically sick will say. May I say a work salvation is the result of folk that are psychologically sick today. And God says here, you can't declare your independence of me. You can't be your own God. God says, I resist the proud. He hath respect unto the lowly. He says, I'll bring down high looks. And you remember back in the book of Job, in Job 40, verse 12, look on everyone that is proud and bring him low. That's what God says that he's going to do. And you remember the Beatitudes in Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit. And here, God says, I hate the proud look. Here are the seven Beatitudes of what God hates. And in Psalm 131.1, the psalmist said, Lord, my heart's not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Oh, to take a lowly place and say, oh, God, I'm weak. I can't make it. You see, today men psychologically adopt all of this phony stuff. I saw a young man the other day walk in among a other group of young men. And he's a big, swaggering baby boy is what he is. 
but he wants to be accepted of his peers. And so he walks in, he looks around, and he begins to curse like a sailor. And I said, poor little fella, what a poor little baby he is, trying to make himself acceptable. Why not go before God and tell the truth? <laughs> Lord, my heart's not haughty. <laughs> my eyes are not. I, I don't want to make claims that are not genuine. I don't have any righteousness. May I say to you, that's when you become a real, full-fledged personality, when you go to God for his salvation. Now listen again to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 66 too. For all those things hath mine hand made, this is God speaking, and all those things have been, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. You're willing to come on that basis, God's willing to receive you. God says he hates a proud look. Then he says he hates a lying tongue. Have you ever noticed that there's more said about the tongue and the abuse of it than is said about the abuse of alcohol in the Bible? And this is something that's common to all races and all languages. You talk about a tongues movement. There is a big tongues movement today. And you know what that is? That's the lion tongue. And I tell you, it's something that is a tragic thing. Remember the psalmist said, I said in my haste, all men are liars. And old Dr. Carroll used to say in class, he said, you know, I've had a long time to think it over, and I still agree with David. Well, I'll have to admit, I'll agree with David. The psalmist again says, Psalm 122, Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. Well, there's more people today that they want to get rid of the guns, you know. They say, if we get rid of guns, why, well, we'll get rid of murder. The most dangerous thing in the world is the tongue today. More people have their reputation slashed and murdered. The fact of the matter is, I'd like to see a movement on let people keep their guns because no use taking guns away from honest folk. They're not going to use them to kill anyone. And they need protection from the gangster that's not going to register his gun, that is for sure. But I would like to see a movement today maybe to get rid of the tongue, maybe put a zipper on the lips or something like that. This thing of the lying tongue, God says he hates it. And God is truth, by the way, and God hates the lie. God desires truth in the inward parts, he says. How wonderful. And the psalmist again says in Psalm 31, 5, Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. How wonderful. Then the third thing God says he hates, hands that shed innocent blood. This is repeated in Romans 3. A murderer is particularly odious and objectionable both to God and man. Now, the difference is just simply this. God says the murderer should be punished. Why? Because he took that which God says is sacred, human life. This idea today that all human life doesn't become precious till somebody's been shot down and the murderer brought up, then the murderer's life is precious. God says the human life is precious. And when that man shot that man down or killed him, then he should forfeit his life. That is the 
teaching, I believe, the Word of God. It says, I see that today. Now he mentions the fourth thing, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, thoughts of iniquity. And I think all men have evil thoughts out of the heart. You remember the Lord Jesus said, proceed certain things. And believe me, it's an ugly brood that come out of the human heart. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. And by the way, have you ever confessed what you have in your mind and in your heart? We need to do that. The anatomy of evil and iniquity. Eyes, tongues, hand, heart, and the next are going to be feet. Notice this. Feet are quick to run to mischief. You know, the heart blazes the trail that the feet will follow. It's quite interesting that Isaiah put it like this, Isaiah 59, 7, Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting and destruction are in their paths. These are the things God says he hates. And the sixth thing is a false witness that speaketh lies, a man that's willing to perjure himself. And today, that seems to be one of the common sins of the present time. Now will you notice here the seventh and the last. And he that soweth discord among brethren. And there's a beatitude over against that. Blessed are the peacemakers. And there are those today sowing discord. And they're not all in Russia or China or in other places today where we think that they make war. It's in your neighborhood. The chances are it's in your church. Now, this is a hateful brood here. You know, we squirm when we see ourselves as in a mirror here, and that's what this does. May I say to you, just take a good look at yourself in this mirror of the Word of God. It may be that you and I, the one listening today and the one speaking today, may need to go to God and make a confession of these things. Now, he goes on, my son... Keep thy father's commandment and forsake not the law of thy mother. Now this man is grown. He's become a grown man. He's gone away to school. But don't forget what your father taught you, your mother. Bind them continually upon thine heart. Tie them about thy neck. When thou goest, it shall lead thee. When thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. When thou wakest, it shall talk with thee. These are things that the young man now is to keep before him. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Now he comes back to this, that is a great sin today, and that is this matter of adultery, the sex sin. And we are moving into an area that, to tell the truth, we've had it before, and it continues on actually into the very next chapter. And the warning now that's given to the young man, again, is the strange woman, the prostitute. That which probably can wreck the life of a young man more than anything else. How many young men today have had their lives absolutely wrecked and ruined because of it. How many marriages are broken up because of it? Hollywood continues to play the 
same old theme song in all of their plays. It's a triangle, always. There is the married couple, and then there is the third party is either a woman or a man that's in to break up the marriage. The strange woman or the strange man, the evil man, as he's called here in Proverbs, to beware of him. Now let me read, beginning here at verse 24. He says here, "...to keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman." Now notice the language here, "...lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids." Now, the sin begins in the heart. Out of the heart proceed the issues of life. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart. I was back east, and we were on a certain radio station that has what's known as an open-end program. And they ask on the radio, and you answer them right there. One was obviously from a young man. His voice sounded like it, and he sounded very serious, by the way. And he began like this. It was rather shocking there for a few moments. Everybody in the studio re really looked rather peculiar. He said to me, Dr. McGee, Jesus said that if you so much as lust after a woman, to look upon her, to lust after her, that you've committed adultery already in your heart. Now, he says to me, his question was, does that mean that if you look at a woman with a miniskirt on? And may I say, I swallowed twice. I said to him, young man, if you don't know what that means, and don't know that it applies to a miniskirt, then may I say, then you don't need to worry about it at all. I think you could forget it. But the whole thought that the Lord Jesus gave, and the whole thought here is that the sin begins always down in the human heart. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart. And then he says, For by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread, and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. How many men have been ruined like that? How many today? You and I'd be, I'm sure, surprised if we knew how many office wives there are and how many are being blackmailed. And, of course, you don't hear about very many of them. I noticed that recently up in San Francisco, a very prominent doctor, up there that everyone thought was leading such a very moral, fine life that I think he is down here in Southern California. He had a wife down here and children by, apparently keeping up two homes. And we had that happen to a minister, by the way. How does all of this begin? Well, it begins just like the Lord says. He knows us. He made us, and he knows the web and woof of our being. And he says, lust not after her beauty in thine heart. Begins there. Now, he says here, he asks a few very pointed questions. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? I think the answer to that is obvious. Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? We've got, you know, quite a few fanatics that do that. But it always burns your little tootsies when you walk on those hot coals. Now, he says, So he that goeth in to his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her, shall not be innocent. 
Now, this is something that is quite amazing in Scripture. And it's amazing that this works out in human life. And apparently God entertains thoughts along this line. And it's this. A man that commits adultery is not innocent. And he has no plea whatsoever. Now he goes on to give an illustration. Man do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he's hungry. Now, if a man is hungry and steals, well, sympathy goes to him. A man was arrested in my community here in Southern California, and it's found out he had some little children at home that were hungry. May I say to you, what would you do in a case like that? I'll be very frank and tell you this, that I got a grandson, and if that little fellow gets hungry, I'm going to go out and get some food for him. And I'll be honest with you, I'm going to get food for him. If I don't have the money, I'm still going to get food for him. Why? Men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he's hungry. But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all the substance of his house. I'd mortgage my house. I would get the money to pay for it some way. Now he goes on to say, But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. Again, I draw these illustrations from right around us here in Southern California. man walked into another man's room the other day and drew a gun, and he shot the man dead. Well, the story came out. The man was exonerated. His home had been wrecked by this man. This is something you don't forgive very easily. Whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. And that is something that will scar his soul for life. Never get beyond that. As a pastor, and I'm sure many other pastors could tell this. I know a wife that her husband had an affair years ago, and he repented of it, came back to her, asked to be forgiven. She forgave him. But I happen to know the home, (laughs) and I happen to know that it's not a happy home. That's something you don't rub out. You lack understanding. You'll wreck your home. You'll wreck your life. This is something that's wrecked many a man. He will not regard any ransom, neither will he rest content, though thou givest many gifts. Why? Because for jealousy is the rage of a man, therefore he'll not spare in the day of vengeance. Tremendous thing. Now, chapter 7 goes on and deals actually with this same subject. The whole thought here is beware of a woman of easy morals. Now, he says here, my son, keep my words. Lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live, and my law as the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers. Write them upon the table of thine heart. Say unto wisdom, Thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman. Now, let me give here what I believe is the spiritual application of this for Christians today. I think it has a literal interpretation, but it has a spiritual. Now, having said what he did here, 
Listen to verse 5 of chapter 7. "...that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. For at the window of my house I looked through my casement." And beheld among the simple ones, I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding, passing through the street near her corner. And he went the way of her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And behold, I met him a woman with the attire of a harlot and subtle of heart. She's loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house Now is she without, now in the streets, and lieth and waited every corner. So she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. She's religious, you notice. There's nothing wrong. This is great. Therefore came I forth to meet thee diligently, to seek thy face, and I found thee. In other words, you are the only one. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves. For the goodman is not at home. He's gone a long journey. He hath taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. With her much fair speech... She caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks. Till a dart strike through his liver as a bird hasteth to the snare and knoweth not that it's for his life. Hearken unto me now, therefore, O ye children, And attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her paths. For she hath cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. Now that is highly figurative. That language there is strong language indeed. And I've read it all. And I've read it for a purpose. Now, in Scripture, there is that which is known as spiritual adultery. And that is when God's people, they left him and went after idols. And they were snared by idolatry. And they were brought into subjection to idolatry. And they departed from the living and true God. They were to be joined to him But they're no longer. They are playing, actually, the harlot. But they are being unfaithful and untrue to him. Now, the thing that he's saying here is this. There are around us today the cults and the isms and all types of false religion about us today. In Southern California, we are larded with this type of thing. It's on every hand. And this one says, you don't need any longer to follow Christ as you're following him. You don't need to just trust him alone as your Savior. What you need to do is to do this. And what you need to do is to join this group. You would be amazed today at the number of letters that come to me 
And some time ago, when we were teaching Galatians, where I made the statement again and again, faith plus nothing equals salvation, that you're absolutely, utterly cast upon Jesus Christ. He's your Savior. He's your Lord. He's your Master. And a great many people, oh, did they write in? And did they say some very ugly things? And among the things they said, you said that the law is something that we should get rid of. I didn't say anything of the kind. What I said is, the law can't save you. The law was never given to save you. And the law is good, but there's something wrong with us. And only Christ can save us. And when we turn from our own efforts, from our own works, from those things that we do today and turn to him, we can be saved. Then there are many wrote says, you were wrong. You should have told them that they had to be baptized a certain way. You should have told people that they should have joined a certain group, a certain cult, by the way. And one man said, and you should be sure and tell them that they are to keep the law. Even if they just trust Christ, they're to keep the law. My friend, we're joined to Christ. And he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. We love one another. We're to be filled with the Spirit. We're to witness to the world. Those are his commandments today. And we're joined now to the living Christ. We live on a much higher plane. And the fruits of the Spirit should be in our hearts and our lives. Oh, today, and may I say this carefully, oh, today, that flattering ism and cult made up like a woman of the street. And she is flattering and calling to men and women. Oh, they <laughs> they knock on your door. They hand out tracts. They meet you everywhere. This old gal, she is busy today. I tell you, she's a prostitute. She wants to take you away from Christ, by the way. She wants to have you join something. She wants to bring you into some kind of a system. Oh, my friend... <laughs> There's that spiritual prostitute that's out on the street today, and I'm sorry to say on radio and through other means, out trying to lure. And we're told here that it's just like an ox going to the slaughter when you go in. It's just like a fool that needs correction when you go into that sort of thing. In other words, God says you're not being smart when you do that type of thing. Oh, to come to him and to settle for nothing less than the person of Christ. What a picture that you have here. And this is a picture today, friends, that I'm sure are going to hurt a great many folk. And you want to know something? I'm going to get some more letters, by the way, to straighten me out. Maybe I need straightening out. But my judgment here is that this is the finest picture of cults and isms that you have. A prostitute made up, attractive and offering something to man that will actually destroy him and send him down to hell and take him away from Jesus Christ, the lover of our soul. What a picture. Now we come to chapter 8 here, and we've come to really a break now in this. And here in this chapter, the young man has been examining the literature of the different colleges, and the school of wisdom and the school of fools are bidding 
for him to make application. And it's wisdom now that really sends out an invitation to him. And there's an urgency and a note of pressure that's put upon the young man now. Will you listen to it? The school bell's going to ring before long, and they want this young man enrolled. You see, he's been lured and enticed to leave the school of wisdom. Listen to this now. Chapter 8, verse 1. Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice? And believe me, if the cults and isms are out today on the street and ringing doorbells, let's let God's people do that also. I'm thankful for the very fine organizations, especially working among the young that are out ringing doorbells today, out doing personal witness. Why? Because doth not wisdom cry. She ought to be out there. And understanding put forth her voice. She standeth in the top of high places, by the way in the places of the paths. She crieth at the gates, at the entry of the city, at the coming in at the doors. Unto you, O man, I call, and my voice is to the sons of man. And that's what this radio is all about. We're trying to send out a call to come to the school of wisdom and to come to wisdom personally. And Christ has been made unto us wisdom. And it's to come to Christ. O ye simple, are you willing to take that position? Say you're not adequate. Say you are a sinner. And that you really don't have intellectual problems. What a joke today to hear these folk. This young fellow came to me, I have intellectual problems. You know what he had? He didn't have intellectual problems. He had a sin problem, and he didn't want to give up his sin. My friend, if you want to give up your sin, well, turn to Christ. You'd be amazed how your intellectual problems will be solved. Oh, ye simple, verse 5. Understand wisdom, and ye fools, be ye of an understanding heart. Hear, for I will speak of excellent things, and the opening of my lips shall be right things. What a picture we have here. For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing froward or perverse in them. They're all plain to him that understandeth, and right to them that find knowledge. You see, if it's really wisdom, it's going to be simple, and it'll appeal to the simple. I'm thankful God did not make the gospel to appeal to folk that have just a high IQ. If he did, many folk would just be left out altogether. But this is a message to the simple, and it really is a simple message. Wisdom is not as complicated as people seem to think that it is. Wisdom now is making a final plea, and almost a desperate plea, for the young man to come to her school and to turn in and to receive instruction from her. And the things that are being said are tremendous things, now, there are many folk today that talk about the errors in the Bible and the problems. I know there are several books out that deal with problem scriptures. And I recognize that to an intelligent person, there are problems. But the problem is not in the Word of God. The problem 
is in the mind of you and me to tell the truth. I had a lot of problems at the beginning. I still have a few, but the problem is not in the Word of God. The problem is in the mind and heart of man. God says there's nothing twisted or perverse in the words of wisdom. And the very interesting thing is that these things that man call deep and profound, they're not always that. Now, when I went through school, I had the same viewpoint that a lot of these young fellows have today that I probably knew it all. We had a lecturer that came to the seminary. He was a very brilliant man. And I'll be very frank with you, he was speaking right over the top of my head. And I went to the man that was probably the most brilliant professor in the school. In fact, he's considered one of the outstanding scholars of the South, even to this day. And I went to him and I said, Doctor, I'm not getting very much out of these lectures. And I must confess that they are over my head. And I said, I always had a viewpoint that I could understand anything that any man had to say, and I'm not getting it. And I never shall forget what this man said to me. He said, Vernon, he says, you know, when a pool is clear, you can see 60 feet in that pool to the bottom. But he says, when it's muddy, you can't see the bottom of a horse hoof in the middle of a muddy road. Well... You know, that answered it for me. And when anyone says today, well, you know, there are certain intellectual problems I have with the Bible. I just don't seem to be able to understand the Bible. Now, let me be very frank with you. The problem, my friends, not with the Bible. The problem is with you. There's a very remarkable passage of Scripture that We've looked at when we studied Second Corinthians, and I've referred to it many times. I'll continue to refer to it. I think it's absolutely profound and yet very simple. It's in the third chapter of Second Corinthians, verse 14. I'll begin reading there. He says, well, let me move back to verse 13. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Now, there's a veil over their eyes. And immediately somebody will say, well, if there's a veil over the eyes, they can't see it, and they're not responsible. And that's what a great many are saying today. There's a veil over my eyes. I don't quite understand that. That's not your problem, friend. Let's now face right up to it, that the veil has been done away in Christ. But even under this day now, verse 15, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Well, he says the veil is there upon their heart. What about that? Nevertheless... This is verse 16. This is the one that's important. When it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. When it, what does he mean by it? Well, it refers back to the last principal subject, and that was the heart. When the heart, nevertheless, when the heart shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. 
references back now to the heart. When the heart shall turn to the Lord. Now, you see, your problem is not head trouble. It's heart trouble. There's a lot of heart trouble today. And let's get right down now where the rubber meets the road, right where you're living. You say you've got intellectual problems. You have none. <laughs> your problem is that there's sin in your life, and you don't want to give it up. There are things in your life that you would not want to change. You are not willing to bow your head and your heart and come to Jesus Christ. That's your problem. When you're willing to, you notice, nevertheless, when the heart shall turn to the Lord. When you're ready to turn to him, it's amazing what'll happen. The veil shall be taken away. These things that are problems will be removed. I heard of a great mind and man of the Middle Ages who said, I had many problems until I came to Christ. Yes, you'll have a lot of problems, intellectual ones, but the problem is really heart trouble when you're ready to come to Christ. Because, you see, he's made it clear in his word. You can't misunderstand the gospel. It's deliberate, willful resistance of the gospel. And that is the reason that when I was a pastor... I use the Word of God more or less like a Geiger counter. I just taught the Word of God. You know, you take a Geiger counter along, and you can tell when there's uranium there if you've got a Geiger counter. But the Word of God is just like that. I take that along, you know, in the church, and you come to one individual, and my, the little arrow just jumps up and down, and there's a recording taking place. They love the Word of God. <laughs> The Word of God is a Geiger counter, you see. But I go over some, and they, oh, they had pious expressions. And they had a fundamental vocabulary. But, you know, just dead as it could be. They never came on Wednesday evening, and if they did, they resisted the Word of God. And, you know, that little group, you find them everywhere today. They resist the Word of God. And somebody says, why don't you deal with them? I let God do that. It's amazing the things that happen as you go along. How God moves into this family. How he deals with this member and that member. And then this very arrogant young man, he runs off with another woman, leaves his wife. And it happens again and again. May I say to you, there was sin in the life. That's the problem today. I emphasize that. Because my friend, God's made it very clear there's nothing twisted or perverse in the words of God. <laughs> He's made it clear, friend. He tells you that he doesn't like sin. Maybe you do, and you won't like God, and you won't like the preacher that's given out the Word of God. My, how you'll resist him. How many wonderful preachers across this country today giving out the Word of God, and you've got that little group resisting the Word of God. Oh, they have a vocabulary. They sound as pious as punch. My, go listen to them talk. You think that they've just shined their halo and they're going to take off any moment flapping their wings. But they just don't happen to be that way underneath. Now, will you notice, he says here, "...receive my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold." That's verse 10 here now of Proverbs 8. For wisdom is better than rubies, 
and all things that can be desired are not to be compared to it. When you and I come to the place, as Job did, for the price of wisdom is above rubies, when you and I get our priorities straightened out in our lives, when you and I put a proper valuation on the things of this world and begin to put God first, you see, God says, the minute that you begin to put him first, all these things shall be added unto you. Now, will you notice, verse 12 now, "...wisdom dwell with prudence, and find out knowledge of witty inventions." Now, we're going to find out the thing I've suggested. The Word of God's going to make it clear. Wisdom is a person. That person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, will you notice, verse 13, "...the fear of Jehovah is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy, and the evil way and the mouth of perversions do I hate." Now, this is something that's quite real today, friends. This is something that's right down where you live. Wisdom is manifest. It's the character of God, and that character has been told out in Christ, and evil and pride, and arrogancy, and an evil way. They're hateful to him who's light and cannot abide in darkness. And we're going to have to turn from them if we belong to him. Now, verse 14, counsel is mine, sound wisdom. I am understanding, I have strength, by me kings reign, and princes decree judgment. By me princes rule, and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. There is a statement back in the Psalms that is tremendous. The Most High ruleth in the kingdoms of man. He giveth them unto whomsoever he will. And Daniel repeats that, how tremendous it is. God overrules down here in the affairs of of this world. It doesn't make any difference about the government down on this earth. If somebody says, my, I tell you, Russia is a godless nation. Yes, I think that's probably true. We're pretty far along ourselves, you know. But God's overruling. <laughs> He's overruling. His will's being accomplished. He ruleth in the kingdoms of man. Then verse 17, I love them that love me. And those that seek me early shall find me. Now, this is something that in the life of Solomon, he discovered that when he sought God, God gave him wisdom. And he sought him early when he became the king. And he knew that was true in his own life. Now, God gave him a unique wisdom. And there are a great many that need that. I used to be very harsh on students that were so pious about their study of the Bible. They felt like that some sort of a miracle would take place in the study of the Word. Now, I believe that if you're willing to study the Word of God, that a miracle will take place, that the Spirit of God will open your mind and heart. But until you are willing to meet that, there must be the love of God, the love of the Word, and then the seeking of Him early. And a great many have waited a long time in life, but they've just been saved. And that's seeking him early. Now, verse 18, "...riches and honor are with me, yea, durable riches and righteousness. 
My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. These are wonderful gifts that are not to be put in a safety deposit box. They're not stocks or bonds. They're not real estate, but they're wonderful spiritual gifts that he bestows today. Now he says here, We've come now to Christ. I lead in the way of righteousness, in the midst of the paths of judgment, that I may cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I'll fill their treasures. Now, I think from here on that you'll discover that the Lord Jesus is mentioned, because we have here the one that is in the midst of the paths of judgment and I may cause those that love me. Now, will you notice here, verse 22, Jehovah possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. This is the Lord Jesus. This is wisdom. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, ere even the earth was, so that we have here the Lord Jesus mentioned. And when it says, I was set up, I was anointed from everlasting. Now, this is the one that you have mentioned in the Gospel of John, in that prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. He was begotten, not in the sense of having a beginning of life, but as being of one nature and substance with the Father. Way back yonder in eternity, he was God, and he was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning that has no beginning, because in the beginning was the Word. He was past tense at the time of the beginning. And he is the one today, and the only one that can make this clear to us. He said, no man knoweth the Son, but the Father. And you can't know the Lord Jesus unless the Father and the Son who've sent the Holy Spirit will open your heart. And that's the reason a saved person, he can rest and adore the person of the Lord Jesus. Let the skeptic be skeptical today. We're living in the midst of great unbelief, and the scoffers are about us. But my friend, our relationship is a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was the one that was the Word. And he was. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. What a tremendous statement we have here. Wisdom now is Jesus Christ. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth, while as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the beginning of the dust of the habitable world. When he established the heavens, I was there. In fact, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. When he set a circle upon the face of the earth, You know, you might call God a square if you want to, but we've said he's a triangle, he's a trinity. But his universe is not a square, it's a circle. And men didn't know that at the beginning. Actually, the scientists 
used to speak of a more or less of a square universe. But God has always said it was a circle. And that today, that's the picture. You and I live in a world that's round. And we are going around our planetary system. And we belong to a galactic system. And it's a circle. And then all of these circles are circling around. I tell you, we're really going around and around. No wonder there are so many folk that think they're a big wheel today because they're going around in circles. And that's the way all of us are going now. Now we are told here that when he established the skies above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth. You can stand by the seashore, look way out yonder, and the water's higher than you are. Why doesn't it run over you? Well, God's made a commandment for that. He's got a law that keeps it right where it is. Then we are told, Then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the habitable part of his earth. And my delights were with the sons of man. Without the Lord Jesus was not anything made that was made. All things were made by him. He's the firstborn of all creation, superior to all. Why? Because by him the Father brought all things into being, for he is the uncreated God. And he was rejoicing always before him. And these wonderful delights and joys come to us through the amazing grace of God today. How wonderful all of this is. Now, therefore, hearken unto me, O ye sons, for blessed are they that keep my ways. Hear instruction, and be wise, and refuse it not. Wisdom today is Christ, and there must be the love for it. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at the posts of my entrances. And whoso findeth me, findeth life. You have Christ, you have life and shall obtain favor of Jehovah. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. My friend, you hate Christ, you'll love death. If you love Christ, you'll hate death. What a picture. Now today we come to this ninth chapter of the book of Proverbs. And we've come now to the place where wisdom has opened school. This is the first day of school. And the young man now has matriculated in the school of wisdom. We're thankful for that. And the school bell is getting ready to ring. Everything is prepared now. And so we'll look into this school of wisdom. I begin reading at verse 1. Wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars. She hath killed her beasts. She hath mingled her wine. She hath also furnished her table. She hath sent forth her maidens. She crieth upon the highest places of the city. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanteth understanding, She saith to him, Come eat of my bread, and drink of the wine which I have mingled. Now, wisdom has builded her house. This is the college of wisdom. 
And there are the seven pillars. Now, those seven pillars speak to me of the fact, uh, not of perfection, but of completeness, to receive a complete education all the way from the kindergarten, all the way through the upper level of college training, the graduate course, to the Ph.D. degree. Here is a complete education. That is, wisdom now hath builded her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars. There have always been those that like to boast of the fact that the Lord Jesus had twelve men and they were not educated. I received quite a lesson from a man who wrote me a letter of I don't know how many pages. I didn't get any farther than the first page. But his whole point to me was that he did not like me using the term doctor. May I say that I think that when it's an honorary degree, doesn't mean too much. Then, if it's been given out by Mickey Mouse School, I don't think that it's worth too much. But if a man has worked and earned a doctor's degree, there's no reason why he shouldn't use the term as I see it. My feeling is that it's all right to do that sort of thing. But this man did not like that at all, because He felt that the twelve apostles, none of them had a doctor's degree. (laughs) Well, let me say this to him and to any others. Don't despise knowledge or wisdom. I'm not sure that the colleges today are giving very much wisdom or knowledge. I am greatly distressed at some of the things that I hear. I know a young man very close to him. And he's working on his master's degree so he can teach. And he's in a course in history where he's been told to forget dates and individuals. All he's tried to find out is to get the flavor of any particular age, get the lifestyle, get the attitude of that age. I say to you that that's a pretty slippery type of education in my book. I think facts are very important. I imagine we're going to come to the day when they're going to teach mathematics, that you sort of get the feel of it. You feel for a number. You don't really work out a problem and get the answer. You just feel for it. It's moving in that direction. I still believe facts are facts. Now, will you listen to this for just a moment? Anyone that spent three years with the Lord Jesus Christ is not an ignorant individual. Those twelve men knew a great deal, even including Judas. They had learned a great deal from the great teacher, the greatest teacher that the world has ever seen. They learned from him. You can't call them ignorant. And after all, Paul was a man trained in that day, and no one could say that he is an ignorant man. So that now, wisdom, and wisdom is the Lord Jesus, and he can give you a complete education. Wisdom hath built her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars. She hath killed her beast. She hath mingled her wine. She also hath furnished her table. Now, it's time to come to school and start eating, 
Well, what a picture is given here. Today, we have the same thing. The Lord Jesus depicted this age in which we live as a man made a great banquet. And he sent out invitations for everyone, our certain ones, to come to the banquet that they were invited. All things were ready. But that man, the invited guest, didn't come. So he went out in the highways and byways. Wisdom always has to do that. That's interesting. And here we find that she did that in this case. Verse 3, "...she hath sent forth her maidens. She crieth upon the highest places of the city." And she's ringing the school bell, friend. And that bell is to be heard because it is a call to wisdom. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. To him that wanteth understanding, she saith, Come, eat of my bread, drink of the wine which I have mingled, forsake the foolish and live, and go in the way of understanding. So that there is gone out from wisdom now an invitation. And we're to go out in the byways and highways. And our message is, God's reconciled to you, be ye reconciled to God. We're ambassadors to get that word out. That's what we're trying to do now by radio here and in conferences and in speaking. And today I think the word is probably going out more than it ever has in the history of the world. And to come to the school of wisdom, come to Christ, if you please. Now, something always happens. There are those that are not going to hear. They won't hear. They're the scorner. And you'll waste your time with him. There are those that you're wasting your time. You cast your pearls before swine. Now, you'll always find, I think, in every church, a little group that'll resist the Word of God. And you're wasting your time giving the Word of God to them. And somebody says, Oh, we should just keep on. No, he says, cast not your pearls before swine. And listen now to what he says here in chapter 9. And some people think this is something that's just been added here, inserted, that it doesn't belong here. Here's the place it does belong. Listen to this. Verse 7. He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame. And he that rebuketh a lawless man getteth himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. You give the word of God to some people, they're going to hate you. Rebuke a wise man, he'll love thee. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. Now, this is a pattern that has come down through the age. Now, there's some people that They are so shallow and empty and ignorant that they'll not receive the Word of God at all. And there are those today that they know so little that they will not accept it at all. We are hearing a great deal about the liberal and how broad-minded he is. Did you know that it's the liberal and the broad-minded individual that has put religion out of our schoolroom? They speak of us fundamentalists as being bigots. I'd like to know who are the bigots. I do not mind evolution being taught very candidly. You just let me teach the Bible right along by the side of it. But the 
bigots, the liberals. They say, no, we're not going to have it. I say to you, they're ignorant. I don't care what kind of a degree they've got. They have a narrow mind, not willing for the Word of God to be taught. You're wasting your time with them, too. It's very interesting. The less that a man knows, the more he'll think he knows. That's generally the rule. And I never met a liberal that didn't think he was a very smart cookie. He thought that he knew it all. He thought that he understood, and he doesn't understand at all. The more that a man really knows, the more he'll recognize his ignorance and his limitations. One of the men, a great preacher, and I think he had one of the best minds of any man I ever met, I heard him make this statement time and again. He says, the more I study the Bible, the more I recognize how ignorant I am of it. Somebody said to me, you sure know the Bible. Now, may I say this? I don't. I don't want this to get out publicly, and it'll be just between me and you today. You don't realize how ignorant I am of the Word of God. You can't study this book without realizing how ignorant you are of it. And some of my critics that have written in that tell me how little I really know, they're right. These are tremendous statements that you have here concerning the scorner. You waste your time giving anything to him. Now, will you notice in verse 10, the fear of Jehovah is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Somebody says, I've heard that before in this book. Yes, when the little fellow was in the home, first lesson he was given was the fear of Jehovah, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. And then the minute he moved out in life, before he even started to school, he was given that again. Before he went to college, he was given that. Now he's entered the college of life and the college of wisdom. This is the university of understanding. And what is his first lesson? He's in his freshman year. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where you start. And if you haven't started there, you haven't started, friend. A man's a fool. And that's what this book's going to say. A man is a fool to live without God in this world. You mean to tell me that you're so concerned about safety today? safety on the highway and safety in the home, and you want security for your old age, and you want to make sure that everything is proper for this life, and you take care of all the insurance and the premiums are paid up. And may I say, I think you ought to do that. I think that's the wise thing to do. But my brother, what about eternity? Are you making any plans? Do you have any assurance and insurance for eternity, how foolish it is. Oh, how foolish it is to live this life without God. The fear of Jehovah, that's the beginning of wisdom. Now he says, For by me thy days shall be multiplied, and the years of thy life shall be increased. And that applies to eternity. If thou be wise, thou shalt be wise for thyself. But if thou scornest, thou alone shalt bear it. If you want to be smart, then make preparation for your soul for eternity. Now, if you're going to be a scorner, ridicule all of these things, well, my brother, you're up for judgment. 
this may sound crude to you, but somebody ought to tell you this. My friend, you're on the way to hell. That's where you're going. If I told you that when you went out on the freeway that you'd have an accident, why, you would say, well, say, we got to do something about that. But my friend, what about eternity and where you're going there? Now, this is a tremendous thing. If you want to go on in your own way, you're going to be the loser. The very interesting thing is, a man said to me one time, he was the town atheist in the town where I preach. He said, you know, preacher, I don't buy this stuff about eternal life and all that sort of thing and trust in Jesus. He said, that's all right maybe for some folk, but he says, I don't care for that type of thing. Well, I said, now, I want to say this to you. Maybe you are right. Now, suppose you are right. Then I'm even with you. You and I are going to come out at the same place if you are right. But I said, just suppose, just suppose that I am right and you are wrong. I tell you, friend, you're in a pretty bad spot. And as an atheist once said, he says, I would be contented if it wasn't for the awful fact that the Bible may be true. (laughs) Yes, it may be. And if it is, it'll be an awful fact when you turn your back upon it. Now, he speaks here again about the foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knoweth nothing. Now, foolishness runs a school, too. There seems to be a lot of those around. Verse 14, "...for she sitteth at the entrance of her house on a seat in the high places of the city." She doesn't have to go out in the highways and byways and invite people in. They come to her. (laughs) That school of foolishness, thousands that are going to schools like that, to call passengers who go right on their ways. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither." Now, wisdom wants people that'll come that'll be simple. But, my brother, you are simple. If you turn into the school of the foolish woman, whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. And as for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, Stolen waters are sweet, and bread of secrecy is pleasant. But he knoweth not that the dead are there, and her guests are in the depths of Sheol, are in the depths of hell. Oh, how many so-called wise men, have turned in there and found out how tragic, how tragic their end was. It was Byron who wrote toward the end of his life, My days are in the yellow leaf, the flower, the fruit of life is gone, the worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. Byron, who had everything, good looks, a genius, He had fame, the applause of the world. He had wealth, had all of these things. And yet he said, the worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. That's what it came to for him. And not long ago, a famous movie star in his day was outstanding, married to several of the beauties of the world. And the other day, as an old man, he committed suicide. He left a note. The note said, I'm bored with life. How tragic. May I say to you, foolishness still runs a college. And believe me, there's a waiting list. They all want to join. 
That's the picture of foolishness. 